Many of you may or may not know that our daughter, Becca, uh, is a teacher at a Christian school in Thailand. Uh, She's been teaching elementary-aged children from Buddhist families for the past six years. I can't believe it's been six years. Six years, I know. That means I'm six years older, so it's uh, it's hard to imagine. But, you know, these, these parents from these Buddhist families, they're wanting their children to get a good education and learn English. Um, But while these children are getting a good education, they are also hearing about Jesus every day in their classrooms as well as in chapel. Thankfully, it is not against the law for people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these children. Uh, The parents don't seem to mind letting the children learn uh, about Christianity and about, and about Jesus, as long as their students were getting a good education. Uh, but as my wife, Cindy, and I have traveled to visit uh, Becca twice now, we were hoping to already have visited another time, but couldn't due to COVID. Um, she reminded us that there are many strict laws in, in Thailand. In Thailand, there is a king who lays down the laws. Uh, and if you don't obey them, there can be serious consequences. Um, the big one that she wanted us to know about before we came, I don't know why she was looking at me saying these things, uh, but uh, she said, the big one, it was a criminal offense to be critical of the king of Thailand or to be critical of any of the members of the royal family. So she knew maybe I can be snarky and she said, dad, you know, it's, it's serious. So <laughs> dad, do not say anything snarky about the king of Thailand. I wasn't going to, but... Um, But this is really kind of foreign to so many of us who live in the United States who do not live under a king. Um, You know, speaking critically of the president or others leading our country is very commonplace. Um, But there are other uh, unique laws in Thailand as well. Uh, I read something about some strange laws in an article in Thailand. Um, It said... It is also a crime to step on any Thai currency. Not sure why you would want to step on money, but then again, it made sense. The Thai currency has the picture of the king on it, so it's kind of related, right? Um, Also, another law in Thailand Thailand that you would not think needs to be a law, this is a very strange one. It is illegal to leave your house without underwear on. Again, not, not sure who would need to know that or why it's even against the law, but so, um, you know, it's also against the law to drive a car shirtless. Um, and then one that I'm in favor of would be in the United States. It, it would be, it's a punishable offense to throw out your used chewing gum onto the pavement. Um, you know, that just drives me nuts. I see all the gum all over the streets here. Um, but, you know, as, as we deal with many man-made laws in our world today, we, we may argue as to how valid some of them are to us, yet all of God's law has value and a purpose. And so as we continue in our series in the book of James, we'll be looking at God's merciful law. And I ask that you please open up your Bibles with me to the book of James, chapter 2. Uh, This is found on page 1,208 in the Church Bibles. 1,208 in the Church Bibles. Again, it's James chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse uh, 8. James chapter 2, starting at verse 8 through verse 13. 
This is God's holy, infallible, life-giving, and life-transforming word. Again, James chapter 2, starting at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you, are, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And Lord, bless the reading, hearing, and obeying of his holy word. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father God, again, we come before your throne of grace, and we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to put aside the distractions of the world. Lord, help us to, to look to you this morning. Help us to desire to listen to your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a mighty way and that we, by your grace, would be transformed further into the image of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we continue to look at God's word in the book of James this morning, we come across some words that are unique in the book of James to the rest of the Bible. They're nowhere else. Um, in in verse 8 of chapter 2, he mentions something called the royal law. The royal law. What is the royal law? What is this royal law that James is speaking about? The, the word royal here, you might understand, would be belonging to a king. It is the law of the king. Coming from a mindset, again, of being raised in, in the United States, this might not mean much, but to Jewish Christians whom James was writing to, they would have uh, likely understood the seriousness of the law of the king. Going back to Daniel chapter 6 in the Bible, it speaks of the law of the king, and it says uh, that these guys, these commissioners and satraps, they came by agreement to the king, they spoke to him, and they said, King Darius, oh, live forever. And all these commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, these officials, uh, the governors, we've all consulted together uh, and that the king should establish a, a statute, a law, and enforce this injunction against anyone who makes a petition to any god besides you, O king, for 30 days. And if they do, they shall be cast into the lion's den. Many of you may, may remember the story. It was, they were trying to trap Daniel. How can we get Daniel He's always doing something that's going to trip him up. And so the king goes, okay, that's a good idea. Now, now king, establish this injunction. Uh, and, and they told him to sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And so therefore, King Darius, he listened to his, uh, his, his, his counselors. 
And he signed the document, and he made the law, and the law of the king there was powerful, wasn't it? It could not be changed or revoked. This was the law of an earthly king. But our passage is speaking about much more than the law of an earthly king. It is the royal law of God Almighty, the king of all kings. James is reminding his hearers that this is God's royal law, which is also unchangeable and irrevocable. King David further describes God's law for us in Psalm 19, verse 7. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. When many of us think about laws in general, um, I think many of us think about laws are are set up, at least in the the world around us, to to restrict us and to constrain us um, into doing or into not doing something. But God's law is much more than that. James quotes part of God's royal law from the scriptures saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James is, is quoting from God's royal law in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18. The context is, it, it says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin against him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. James may have also been quoting his brother Jesus, who was quoting Leviticus, right? In Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, trying to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Although James only wrote out loving your neighbor as yourself, perhaps he was inferring that they already knew that first part, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some have argued that that James was referring to what some people have called the golden rule. So when he's saying the royal law, he may have been referring to what is the golden rule. Again, it's all intertwined, isn't it? The golden rule is not what a lot of people in our world think the golden rule is. Many people think the golden rule is those with the most gold rule, right? <laughs> Sadly, that is how the, often the world looks like sometimes, isn't it? The golden rule, however, and it's not mentioned, golden. if you look up the words golden rule together in the Bible, it's not there. It's just somebody came up with that idea. Um, it's, 
It's from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, probably quoting Leviticus again. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or as other people may have learned, as I said earlier to the children, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. However you understand this royal law that James is talking about here to mean, we do know that this royal law is from King Jesus as he quotes, as James is quoting scripture. So we see James quoting the royal law of King Jesus, who is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, just as the Israelites needed God to tell them to love their neighbors themselves, and we see Jesus explaining this to the people that he was talking to in his day, in, in the Gospel of Luke, you know, we have Jesus again having a lawyer come up to him again, saying he's putting him to test. It could be that same scenario. We don't know for positive whether these are similar or different. But he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So here this lawyer knew it, right? And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But then it says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, for the Jewish person hearing this command to love their neighbor would have meant his fellow Israelite neighbor. That's who his neighbor was. They would have not thought that this law would have applied to loving an outsider or a foreigner that was not what neighbor meant to them. Jesus then proceeds to share this parable explaining what he means by loving your neighbor as yourself. Explain to the lawyer who a neighbor is by saying a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead and by chance a priest was going down on the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and he saw him, just passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came up to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hands? Jesus said, and he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. So Jesus was showing that there are many people who claim to know God's royal law, like this, this priest, like this Levite, they would have known God's royal law. Yet, they 
although they knew the scriptures, they chose not to love someone in need, their neighbor in need. Loving our our neighbor is not just loving those who love us. Jesus was stating this truth in the gospel of Luke chapter 6. He said, treat others the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But Jesus says something radical here. He says, but love your enemies and do good and and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, he says. Jesus is teaching us that we are not to be just loving our our friendly neighbors, those of our our relatives or friends or those people in our church. We're supposed to be loving our unfriendly neighbors. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 43, that you have heard what it said. This is what they were hearing. This is what they were being taught. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No. But that's what they were learning. Are we supposed to be hating President Putin? Tough, right? We need to be praying for President Putin. But Jesus says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is declaring that we are commanded to love our neighbor and to love our enemies who are, in fact, our neighbors as well. Well, how are we to do that? How are we to? No, one, no one said that that would be easy. Jesus never said, look, I got something easy for you to do. Love your enemies. In fact, James says, if you fulfill it, you are doing well. If you fulfill that command. If you are fulfilling the law, the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If you fulfill it, you are doing well. The the word here, to fulfill, means to carry it out, to complete it, to to finish it, to accomplish it. And this, this might seem like an impossible task before us. How can we do this? The Apostle Paul also speaks of fulfilling the law in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, saying, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through this, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is how it's fulfilled. The law is fulfilled by loving. James was telling 
his hearers that they would be doing well if they were obedient to God's royal law of love. But the problem comes when we do not fulfill the royal law. And instead, we start showing partiality and favoritism to those around us, which James spoke earlier about in James chapter 2, verse 1. He said, James is saying that it would be good if you're fulfilling the royal law, but instead you are transgressing the law. He's basically saying if you transgress the law, then you are a sinner. If you transgress the law by showing partiality, by showing favoritism to another, you are a sinner. A committing sin means, means that we are missing the mark. In archery, this idea is, is the idea is to be hitting the center of the target, right? Shooting the arrow and aiming it at the target, your desire is to hit the target. But when it goes to the right or to the left, that's called missing the mark. And that is a picture of what sin is for us. We are called to stay on the path of obedience to God's royal law. But when we veer to the right or we veer to the left, we are missing the mark of God's standard. And that is what is called sinning. We all miss the mark, though. There's not one of us who do not. We all sin in our thoughts. We all sin in our words. We all sin in our de deeds. We, we sin by omission and we sin by commission. And in the example of this parable of the Good Samaritan, we see the priest who saw that this person was in need decided to pass by on the other side of the road and the Levite did the same thing. They were both sinning by omission because we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, as they failed to do so. Now, if we brought this into a modern analogy, maybe it's Pastor Dave here at the church. He's walking out the door and he's on his way home to his wife's really good meal. The dinner's getting ready. He's looking forward to that. And then he sees this person who he knows is need, right? They're there. They, they've fallen down. They're obviously in need of help. And he goes, Pastor Dave goes, you know, I, the police can take care of this, you know. I'll just, I, I gotta get, I have to get home. I have an appointment with my wife. That's important, right? But that's a, the reality is we, none of these things, when people come in need, when we need to love them, it's not at a convenient time. It's not easy. The illustration that James gave earlier was of being in a worship service, of showing favoritism, wasn't it? Pastor Mike spoke about that. They were showing favoritism towards a rich man who showed up at their worship service and they were offering him the best seat in the house. Maybe it was those red cushy chairs in the back. We have, we have one for you, sir. You, yes, you probably can give a lot of money to the church. We're going to give you the best seat in the house. But then somebody in there was walking through the doors and they kind of smelled shabby clothes and they're like, oh, man. He's going to be a distraction to the worship service. Maybe, maybe we can have him sit in the narthex somewhere. I don't know. On the floor over there. I don't know. That's, that's favoritism. By showing partiality, by showing favoritism, James was saying they were committing sin and they were convicted by the law as transgressors. After James spoke about the royal law in verse 8, 
He makes reference to the, the whole law, he says. James is making the point that God gave us the whole law. It is, a, it is a reminder that God gave us the whole royal law to be obeyed. God declared through the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of the Bible is from God. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, it says that no prophecy, none of God's word did not come about by man's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The world and, and many people who call themselves Christians even are wanting to just pick and choose which parts of God's word that they want to obey. Years ago, there was a man by the name of Ted Turner. Some of you may know him. He's a cable TV mogul in Atlanta, Georgia. Ted Turner, what did I say? All right, Ted Turner, that is his name. And uh, he's this, this uh, TV mogul. And he declared that the Ten Commandments were obsolete. In fact, he said they were outmoded and outdated. And he said, you know what? We need to replace those Ten Commandments with ten voluntary initiatives. And I read through these things. I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, God's word tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, in verse 19, anyone who takes away from the words in this book of prophecy, God will take away his part in the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And this this. These words can be applied to not just the book of Revelation, but to the whole royal law of God. We cannot pick and choose which commandments we want to obey and which ones we don't. All of God's royal law is meant to be kept. It's meant to be kept. James writes, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in even one point has become guilty of all. Another passage in the Gospels, there was this rich young ruler who knelt before Jesus, showing respect, right? And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know, Jesus responded, you know the commandments. So he knew that he, this man was probably raised up in a Jewish home and he knew the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loving him, said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And what does the rich young ruler tell you? Oh, absolutely, I'll be happy to give all. No, he didn't. It says he was disheartened and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to follow Jesus by doing what he said. Here, here there was this religious man. Here he, he knew the commandments, at least in his mind. He even knew that he thought that he had kept all of these commandments from his youth. But he really didn't know what these commandments really meant, and nor did he truly obey them. Because if, the, because if he knew these commandments from God's royal law, he would have known that it was impossible for him to keep 
the whole law. It is God's whole royal law that convicts us of our sin. It is, it is God's royal law that convicts us of our sin. And this is a good thing. The word for convict in our passage this morning means to, to reprove or admonish or rebuke. And it is, it is the Holy Spirit that does this through God's word, his royal law. It says in the Gospel of John chapter 16, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. It is said to be convicted by the Holy Spirit through God's word is to feel a sheer loathsomeness of our sin. Do you loathe your sin? This happens when we see God's beauty, his purity, his holiness, recognizing that sin cannot dwell with God. When Isaiah stood in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, you remember that passage? He was immediately overwhelmed by his sinfulness, saying, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We are convicted of our sin when we become mindful of how much our sin dishonors God. When King David was confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet, he became convicted of his sin. And he says in Psalm 51 to God, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it is good. It is good that we are convicted of our sin because it shows our need for Jesus to cleanse us and to purify us and to forgive us of our sins. The whole royal law of God reveals our guilt. It is said that guilt is the result of having violated or transgressed a rule of law. Perhaps you have experienced uh, that guilty feeling like I have on occasion of, of driving down the highway knowing that I'm going above the speed limit because I gotta get to my parents quickly. And all of a sudden, you see the flashing lights behind you of the police officer, that state police officer's got the flashing lights, and there's a sense of guilt. I'm doing something wrong, and I was, and did, especially when he pulled me over. Do you know that you were seeing the speed? Yes, I had to get to my parents' house. You still broke the law, sir. I'm going to write you a ticket. As Christians, God has given us the word of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives to convict us of our sin and to reveal our guilt. And we are all guilty of being sinners, whether we feel guilty or not, by the way. That happened at the, at the beginning when Adam and Eve fell and incurred guilt upon all of mankind. It is said that those guilty feelings, however, are useful when they drive us to Jesus, when they drive us to repentance. Again, repentance is, is, our, is hating our sins and forsaking our sins and making that U-turn, turning around from what we have been doing and turning towards God and what he has for us in our lives. Years ago, I was shown just how good I had to be in order to have eternal life in heaven it's exactly what it says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus says that we need to be perfect 
as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a high standard that none of us can attain. James tells us in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of the law. This reminds me of an illustration of the honor roll, something I don't think I've ever had been on, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I were to get a report card with all A's and one D, uh, that, that might be good in my eyes, but that's not good enough to make the honor roll, the highest honor roll I had. I needed to have all A's. I could, I could beg and, and try and argue and plead my case that I deserve to be on that highest honor roll, but that D that I got it disqualified me from being on that highest honor roll. Made the whole highest honor roll null and void. The same would be true if I were to invite you into my house and it offered to make you a batch of my wife's uh, beautiful, delicious chocolate chip cookies. I'm using her recipe, so I cannot possibly fail. So you'll, you would love them. And uh, you know, I got out all of the delicious uh, ingredients like sugar, and chocolate chips, and butter, flour, I guess that's a good thing, you know, it has, it makes it good, right? And, and I realized it needed an egg as well, and I go into the refrigerator, and, and I look, and I see that the eggs had already expired, you know? I'm like, hey, you know, it's probably not going to make much of a difference, it'll be fine. And I, and I take that egg, and I crack it into the bowl, and oh my, what a stink! It smelled up the entire kitchen. It was disgusting. I think it would have did the whole house. You know, you know, what if I just mix it in? It's probably going to be fine after a while. Maybe if I bake it, it'll, be, it'll kill the whole smell. You know, I would never serve that to you. Just like we should never serve our lives to God because of even one sin. It makes us guilty. It has ruined our whole lives before him. James is saying that whoever keeps the whole law that yet stumbles at just one point has become guilty of all. For he said, do not commit adultery. He said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. I was kind of surprised that James picked these two commandments, by the way. You know, I'm thinking, well, most of us probably... Don't do either one of them, have not committed the, either one of those acts, right? But if we think about what they really mean, right? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then Jesus goes on to explain what it really means to be an adulterer. He says, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as we look at these commandments, we can, you can either look at them and say, oh, of course, I'm not a murderer. I'm, I'm not an adulterer. But when we look at how Jesus explains what these mean, then it can seem hopeless for any one of us that we have broken all of God's law. And that we fail so much in keeping and we cannot fulfill God's law. But thankfully, our hope is not in ourselves. That's what the scriptures is pointing. We cannot put our hope in ourselves and our own obedience and what we can do and what we can accomplish. James 
gives us another name here in our scripture passage for God's law, which is the law of liberty. The law of liberty. It is the law of liberty that does great things for us. It is God's whole royal law of liberty that does these wonderful things for us. The most important thing that God's law of liberty is to point us to Christ and our need for him as our Lord and our Savior. If we, don't, if we are reading God's word and we don't sense a need for Christ, then we do not have our eyes open to what the message is. Jesus Christ is the only one who is able to perfectly fulfill and abide that royal law. This means that he perfectly kept the whole royal law. He never stumbled even once. In every thought, word, and deed, Jesus never once sinned. And that's so hard for us to understand, for those of us who have brothers and sisters. He had brothers and sisters. How did he not sin? They provoked him. They provoked him. Jesus, you're so perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he didn't say it in pride either, you know. Jesus loved them in return. They did not love him at all. They don't. He was nuts at times. James is one of his brothers now. James recognized that Jesus is the perfect one. His brother, his older brother, is God Almighty who came and lived a perfect life for him. He did everything right and everything perfect. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, he, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not even the smallest letter nor the stroke of a pen shall pass from the law until all is accomplished by him. Jesus also points out to us that we are to speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. We already showed that it, it convicts us. It shows us our guilt. It is the law of liberty that judges each person. It is the law of liberty that does judge each person. The, the law of liberty is the word of God. And every day, one day, every one of us will stand before God and be judged by a perfectly just and perfectly merciful God. And only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, in his perfect obedient life, in his perfect sacrificial death, in his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, in his triumphant rising from the dead, will have their sins forgiven and have that gift of eternal life and live with him forever. Because God's law of liberty shows mercy to sinners like you and like me. The Apostle Paul shows us as well God's mercy in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and following saying, Therefore, for those who are trusting Christ, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do, weak as though it was in the flesh, God did this. He sent his own son, Jesus, into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
so that we would walk according not to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what are we supposed to do with God's merciful law? Do we go, oh, well, I can't do anything. I, 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 can't, I can't fulfill it. I can't be obedient to it. No. What do we do with God's merciful law? First and foremost, we should do what God told the Israelites to do in the Old Testament. We should do what Jesus was telling those in the Gospels. He, we should do what James is telling us to do in this passage, that we, God has freed us from this law of sin and death in order to first and foremost love our merciful lawgiver. We need to love our merciful lawgiver. We need to love our Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, we need to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. We need to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. And again, we need to be reminded that our neighbor isn't just those who love us, is it? And we cannot have one without the other. You can't just be a kind person in this world and say you have fulfilled the law. And you can't be like those those priests and those Levites who, who thought they were loving God, yet they were neglecting their love for their fellow man. We cannot have one without another if we are truly trusting in Jesus, in his precious and merciful blood that he shed at Calvary. Thanks be to God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God that has given us his mercy, that mercy triumphs over judgment because of what Christ has done for us in his perfect life, that he has obeyed the law for us, that he went to the cross and paid the penalty for us, something that we could not do, that he bled and died, that he rose from the dead, conquered sin and death for us, that he has given to us eternal life, that he has forgiven us, that he has redeemed us, that he has given us the righteousness of Christ, that we might be able to love God, that we might be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord God, help us to do that by your strength and your spirit, for it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.